So Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Welcome to Simcha Israel. So uh, for those of you who are here for the first time or are new to our synagogue, if Simchat was like a collection of great martial artists, Rabbi Tony would be like Bruce Lee, and I would be a like Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> so Purim, so this Shabbat is actually Shabbat Zakor. It's the week of, of Purim. So since Purim is right around the corner, I thought this week we could take a break from the Parsha and take a closer look at the Book of Esther. You know, every year we all gather here in the sanctuary and listen to the reading of the Megillah. And it's pretty fun. You know, we're cheering Mordecai and booing Haman and making whatever noise that it is we're supposed to make for Esther that sounds like the laugh track to Full House. And, you know, but you're here and you're hearing the story being told and you're sitting there and you're kind of bored. You know, reading the poem story year after year sometimes feels like we're back in third grade. Like, this is, this is a kid's story. Why should we have to read it now that we're grown up? But the truth is, the story you learn as a child shouldn't be the story you see as an adult. So I've had the opportunity to write the poem plays that this synagogue has put on for the last several years, so I've really had the opportunity to turn the story over and over and read very closely into these characters I feel like I know so well by now. And I think our familiarity with these characters sometimes works against us. When you know the story of the Megillah, it can be hard to see the strangeness in how the people in the story acted. We know what they did so well that we often don't stop and think about what they could have done instead. So every year, as before I write the play, I sit down and I read the story again. And every year, I have to think, if I were these people, what would I have done in their place? And every year I'm surprised by the great chasm between what you think would happen and what actually took place. But I would argue that these strange logical inconsistencies are windows into the minds of the characters. And if we look through them, we're in a position to see the story of Esther in a whole new way. We'll be in a position to read the story as adults. So let's jump in. You probably want an example of what I'm talking about. Let's start with Esther. Esther acts boldly and heroically, but she also acts a bit strangely. Let's jump to chapter 4, when Esther first learns of Haman's plot against the Jews. Mordecai implores her to go to the king and intercede on the Jews' behalf. Up till now, Esther has succeeded in maintaining the secret that she's a Jew. Mordecai now asks her to reveal this secret. Now, Esther initially refuses. The king has sequestered himself in his chambers, and anyone who enters without permission takes their lives in their hands. But she gathers up her courage, and she goes to face the king, come what may. It's the dramatic high point of the story. Will the king grant Esther an audience? Or will he have her beheaded? What will he do if he finds out Esther has been keeping secrets from him? What if he doesn't listen to her? She enters the chamber, and amazingly, the king lifts his scepter and gives her permission to enter. Not only that, but he tells her he will grant her request no matter what it is, even up to half his kingdom. Now let's stop here. If you're Esther, what do you do right here? Whenever I write these plays, 
This is the moment I have Esther seize the opportunity to make a request. Something like, oh, well, you see, it's very nice of you to offer half your kingdom, but actually, I just require an itty-bitty favor. It seems that genocide has been decreed against my people. Don't know how that happened. Some sort of palace mix-up, probably. But luckily, it's so easy to reverse. If you wouldn't mind just signing right here, we can undo that decree right now. But that's not what Esther does. Instead, she asks the king to meet her and Haman at a banquet later on. Why would she do that? This was her big chance. Why would she squander the magic of this moment by postponing the reckoning for a later date? When is she ever going to get a better chance than this? Esther knows something that's giving her pause. She knows the circumstances under which she became queen. The king has proven himself to be apathetic to the Jews. You know, he decreed their genocide with just a wave of his hand through him and his ring. But we do know that there is one thing that the king definitely cares about, one thing that made him flaming mad. At the beginning of the story, Xerxes is throwing a big party, and he commands his then-wife, Queen Vashti, to be put on display for all his guests. She refuses, and it infuriated Xerxes so much that he had her removed as queen. Esther knows about this history and the implications of that event for her own relationship with the king and what she can plausibly ask him. I think for us to really understand what's going on here, we need to step away from Esther for one moment and take a closer look at King Xerxes. The Purim story usually paints him as this foolish character who makes rash decisions and isn't too aware of what's going on around him. But I argue that there's a method to Xerxes' madness that if we look at things from his perspective, we can understand some of his strange decisions as well. So let's go back to chapter 1. The beginning of the book of Esther, it's a, it's a bit odd. The first 12 verses or so are all about the glory of King Xerxes. We read that he was emperor of the whole world. He threw lavish year-long parties. We read about his wealth, his fine linens, his floor tiles, and his golden utensils. And that'd be fine if we were reading the royal Persian archives, but this is the Megillah. It's a Jewish book. Why do we need to know such banal details? See, the Megillah is telling us this because there is a bigger story going on here. King Xerxes has a problem, and we read about it in the very first verse. Okay, time for a little history lesson here. First, put yourself into Xerxes' golden shoes. For hundreds of years, the Babylonians had been the preeminent world power. But then your people, the Persians, swept in and defeated the Babylonian Empire and took their place at the top of the world. And then one day, you, Xerxes, find yourself crowned king over the largest empire the world has ever seen. An astounding 127 different provinces stretching from the mountains of India to the jungles of Africa. As a young king ruling over a new empire, what is your number one problem? How do I keep all this together? This was in a time before things like telephones and internet and airplanes. I put into Google Maps how long it would take to walk from one end of Xerxes' kingdom to the other, and if you walked 10 hours a day, seven days a week, without ever taking a break, it would take you 286 days. 
I think Xerxes' party lasted 180 days because that's how long it took some people to get there. It takes a long time to relay messages across an empire that vast. How are you supposed to ensure that all 127 provinces will remain loyal to the crown? So the first, first verse tells us the problem. The second verse tells us the solution. Xerxes throws the biggest party the world has ever seen. This is why we get this description of wealth and luxury. In his first year as king, Xerxes threw a party in his new capital of Shushan, and all the most important and powerful people in his empire invited, the generals, the princes, and nobility from every corner of the world. Xerxes wanted them to see the splendor of his, and the glory and the might of his new empire. He knows that the sparkle and shine of the empire's economic and military might, along with a liberal dose of wine, will do more for his hold on power than any amount of oppressive laws or taxes could ever do. Who wouldn't want to be a part of this new Persia? As the feast draws to a close, Xerxes sends for Vashti to appear before everyone. He specifically asks her to wear one thing in particular, her royal crown. What's Xerxes doing here? Think about what a king is. A king is more than just a political ruler. He's the symbol of his country, the flesh and blood embodiment of the nation itself. A nation looks at its king and sees itself in him. If that's what the king is, what then is the queen? She's the feminine embodiment of her country. In her beauty and grace resides the beauty and grace of an entire people. She is Mother Persia. At his final party, Xerxes is showing off the most impressive symbol of his new empire, the beauty of Persia embodied in the beauty of his queen, Vashti. But Vashti refuses to come. Whatever her reasons may have been, Xerxes sees her defiance as a refusal, for do, as a refusal to do her job. And for that, she is removed from her office as queen, and Xerxes begins a search for a woman who can take her place. So here's another strange thing about the story. If you're a king, aren't you supposed to marry like the daughter of a nobleman or someone that you need to make an alliance with? You know, one of those political marriages. But that's not what Xerxes does. He puts on an equal opportunity contest where any girl from any background can become queen. It seems strange, but in this context, it's fitting because once chosen, the new queen will represent all of the women in the empire. And in the end, amongst all the beauties in the 127 promises, Esther is Xerxes' pick. Why Esther? We don't really know. The text doesn't offer us much in the way of details, just that there was something about her that Xerxes liked better than the other girls. What the text does make explicit is that at the request of Mordecai, throughout the whole beauty contest, Esther purposefully didn't, didn't tell Xerxes that she was Jewish. Now think about this. How on earth did Esther get away with this? You have to imagine at some point, Xerxes would be like, so Esther, where are you from? You've got this really hot accent. You know, but somehow, some way, Esther manages to become queen without ever revealing her family, her birthplace, her national, or national identity. How did she do that? That was my pickup line, by the way. I you know. <laughs> I'd argue that Xerxes didn't want to know where she was from. Xerxes is looking for a woman who can effortlessly slip into the role of Mother Persia, the feminine symbol of his new empire. 
Esther's refusal to identify with any ethnicity or people group may have been exactly what Xerxes was looking for. A woman who could be from anywhere, who could represent everyone. And everything's going great for Esther until Mordecai comes to her with a heart-stopping request. She has to go to the king and tell him that she is a Jew and beg for her people's lives. Esther goes to the king, and he tells her she can ask for whatever she wants. But Esther hesitates. Let's get back to that question we asked a few minutes ago. Why does Esther avoid seizing the moment? Now that we have this new information, the answer is evident. Mordecai's request has put her in a very dangerous position. She knows how the king views her. She knows she has helped cultivate this image. And she knows what happened to Vashti. And now she has to go to the king and tell him that it was all a farce? Oh, sure, Xerxes. I believe in your empire, but I have higher priorities. My people, yes, I do have a people. My people are in danger. Will you help me out and save them? What do you think the king will say if Esther reveals that she has an intense national affiliation with the Jewish people? That she's not the mother Persia that he believes her to be? So all this time, Esther, it wasn't true. Your loyalties lie not with me, but with your own province? Whose queen are you, Esther? Ours or theirs? Flat out asking is wildly dangerous. Silence is not an option. What can Esther possibly do here? She takes a third option. Rashi argues that inviting Xerxes to dinner was not a delaying tactic like it would seem at face value but a carefully crafted strategy to turn the king's favor away from Haman and avoid any accusations of deception or treason. Let's look carefully at the text here. If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. This little word, him, throws the king off balance. What does Esther mean, a banquet I prepare for him? There are only two possibilities. Either Esther made a banquet for Xerxes, in which case, why is she inviting Haman to their private date night? Or, even worse, Esther made this banquet for Haman. Why is his wife making a party for someone else? Either possibility is bad, but what's worse is not knowing which one it is. Xerxes' misgivings are just reinforced at the banquet. Xerxes once again offers to grant her any request. Just tell me what it is. What's Esther's response? My petition is this. If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king says. So whoever the first banquet was for, the second one is now for both of them. Something has changed, and the king doesn't know what. And the final uncertainty is, why am I letting my imagination get the best of me? Why am I making a big deal over nothing? It's no wonder the king can't sleep that night. Rashi argues that Esther is playing a dangerous game here. That by inviting Haman and Xerxes to these private dinners, that she is planting in Xerxes' head the suspicion that something is going on between her and Haman. But how is that supposed to help her? If anything, it just makes her position even more precarious. What's her plan here? Let's keep reading and see if it bears any fruit. So, the king isn't the only one who can't sleep that night. Haman has been so obsessed with killing Mordecai that he shows up in the middle of the night to ask permission to hang him. 
Haman thinks he's on great terms with the king. He goes to dinner with him and the wife all the time. But if Haman is preoccupied with Mordecai, the king is preoccupied with Haman. Why is Esther so interested in him? As the king lies awake, he asks for the royal records to be read to him. And he finds out that Mordecai had saved his life some time before and hadn't been rewarded in any way. Just then, the king notices someone's lurking around in the outer courtyard. He asks who it is, and his servant tells him, It's Haman. What's he doing here in the middle of the night? Xerxes has Haman brought in before him. And before Haman can say a word, Xerxes asks him his own question. What is to be done for the man who the king desires to honor? Now Haman, with his inflated ego, thinks that the king must be talking about him. So he says, Oh, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes. And let them array the man who the king desires to honor and lead them on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him. Now, if you're Xerxes, what would you think of Haman's response? Look how many times the word king or royal appears in that statement. It's king this, king that, king, king, king. Now, if you're Xerxes, and you're already up all night worried about the possibility that Haman wants your wife, and then Haman shows up and tells you this, what are you now thinking? Not only does this guy want my wife, he wants my job too. So it's no wonder that Xerxes responds as he does. He goes out of his way to make sure that Haman is humiliated publicly, not only not giving Haman the rewards he so pompously assumed were his, but orders him to be the one who leads Mordecai through the town, proclaiming his praises. The next day at the second banquet, Haman, who just a day earlier had been nearly invincible, is now out of favor with the king, mentally distraught and vulnerable. With just a couple of carefully worded dinner invitations, Esther has swung the pendulum in her favor and is now in a position to make her move. But destabilizing Haman came at a cost. If Esther was in danger of being accused of national betrayal before, she's now provoked suspicions of personal betrayal as well. These are two major problems. And at this point, Esther is battling Xerxes' suspicions as much, if not more, than she's battling Haman himself. One small Jewish woman against the unimaginable might of the ruler of Persia and the most influential nobleman in the empire. How is Esther supposed to make it through the dinner alive when she has such powerful opponents? So I've always been a fan of the martial arts. You know, and one of the reasons why is because the martial arts apply correctly can allow a weaker fighter to defeat opponents who possess much more brute power than they do. Virtually all martial arts systems advocate a variation on the same principle. Don't pit your own strength against the strength of your opponent. Instead, use their own strength against them. So just to do something a little fun and different, I thought maybe I could do a little de demonstration. I'd like to invite my friend Bob Gelba up here. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know,
meet the force of that punch here. See, it looks cool in the movies like this, but you know, in real life, what he's doing is pitting his own strength against mine. And if he was the weaker one, he'd lose. Instead, what he wants to do is divert the punch, throw me off down, and then just lightly knock me off my feet. And it's like this. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. So, if Esther is going to avoid getting crushed by the powerful forces arrayed against her, she has to get out of the way and gently divert those forces. In other words, she has to take the king's fear that she's having an affair with Haman and his anticipated anger at the discovery that she is not the mother of Persia that she hoped she was that, she, that he hoped she was and divert those forces so they work in her favor, not against her. So let's see how the second banquet unfolds and see if she can pull it off. Xerxes once again asks Esther to make her request, and now Esther tells him what's really on her mind. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. The king is shocked when he hears this, and he demands to know who would do such a thing. To which Esther replies, a man who is a treacherous enemy, Haman, this evil one, that's who it is. So there it is. Esther has revealed her Jewish identity and has accused Haman of trying to kill her people. But let's look more closely. How has Esther dealt with the two big problems she has. Maybe you've heard the expression, wag the dog. In short, it's a form of media manipulation in which a small story is blown out of proportion to divert attention away from a larger story. To give a real-life example, right after Bill Clinton was caught in the Monica Lewinsky scandal, the administration started launching uh, missile strikes into Sudan. They were hoping the media would be so focused on a possible war in the Middle East that they wouldn't pay any mind to what the president was getting up to. It didn't work all that well for Clinton, but it does work for Esther. Look at how she words her petition, specifically the order of her words. If I found favor in your sight, O king, and it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. This is a huge bomb Esther drops on Xerxes. In any other circumstance, Esther's revelation of her Jewishness would be major news. But by cloaking it within a story of such personal importance to Xerxes, she diverts all his attention away from it. Xerxes instantly has tunnel vision. Who cares that she's Jewish? Someone is trying to kill the queen. Someone is trying to kill my wife. The first step in softening the threat to her mother Persia image is distracting Xerxes, giving him something more compelling to think about. The woman he loves is asking him to rescue her. What kind of man wouldn't rise to this occasion? Only one question matters to him. Who is trying to do this to you? Esther is only too happy to answer. Haman, right next to you. (laughs) Esther is making a pretty preposterous claim, if you think about it. I mean, the personal threat to her life as a result of Haman's planned genocide, it's dubious at best. 
No one even knew she was Jewish. And if they did, she'd probably get a pass on account of, you know, being the queen. You know, the way she words her request, she's making it out as if Haman was after her personally and was just using the genocide of the Jews as his way of doing it. Why would Xerxes even believe her? A, because it's partly true, and B, because she's already planted these ideas in Xerxes' head. Haman was using genocide as a means to kill just one Jew. Esther just makes out that it was her, not Mordecai, that Haman was after. A misdirection Xerxes is all too ready to believe. In true martial arts fashion, Esther both redirects Xerxes' anger and eliminates her second liability, the suspicion that she's having an affair in a single move. Esther confirms Xerxes' suspicions, but in a way that places all of the king's wrath on Haman. Yes, Xerxes, you were right all along. Haman, this guy you've been so suspicious of, is trying to take me away from you, just not the way you imagined. He doesn't want to romance me. He wants to kill me. Haman is stuck in a violent tribal mindset. He can't see past my provincial roots. He doesn't see me as the queen of a unified Persia the way you do, Xerxes. All he sees is a Jew. He's willing to kill me and millions of other people just to... Because of our ethnicity, Haman doesn't share our dream of a pan-Persian empire. He wants to murder your queen and create race war throughout your kingdom. And it works. All of the king's energy and built-up rage is now redirected and free to express itself as fury upon Haman. An overpowering force was headed in Esther's direction, but she gave it a little nudge and stepped out of the way leaving Haman in the path of the charging bull. The king declares Haman should be taken away, hanged on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Esther's strategy has paid off. So I want to call the worship team back up at this time, but while they come up, I want to ask, where is God in all of this? You know, Purim is the holiday where God works behind the scenes. The name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but he's still there. Now, I've just advanced that Esther acts very subtly with a great deal of cleverness and skill. By giving Esther the credit, I feel this remarkable woman is due. Are we diminishing the contributions of God? I don't think Esther saw it that way. She didn't think it was all about her. Before she goes to see the king, Esther fasts for three days and asks the entire Jewish community to fast along with her. She does this because she understands something. She understands that all the strategies and plans and tactics in the world don't mean a thing unless we have God as our partner. What if Haman never showed up that night the king had insomnia? What if the steward hadn't opened the record book to the exact page that recorded Mordecai's foiling the assassination attempt? Esther can strategize all she wants, but her plans fall apart without God's help. I can give Esther her credit because our interaction with God isn't a competition. It's a partnership. We should all strive for the faith that Esther had to be able to go before God and say, Lord, I've poured every last ounce of my effort and energy and creativity into this plan. I've done what I can do. Now could you please be my partner? Our intelligence, our skill, our drive, 
They don't diminish God's contributions. They instead create an opportunity for him to join us in our endeavors. Purim is a holiday of tremendous joy. It's a celebration of our ability to collaborate with God. With, with him, create something greater than we could ever accomplish on our own. Happy Purim.